Have you ever found yourself just kind of going down the street, going about your day as usual, when all of a sudden it happens? All of a sudden you get this whiff of something, some familiar smell. You may not even be able to really dissect what it is, but all of a sudden you're taken somewhere else. You're taken back to a time in your life when that smell was very profound. You may not really know where it came from or how it hit you, but all of a sudden you're reliving this scene in your life from two, five, maybe even 20 years ago, as though it's happening again right here and right now, and you're reliving it because of this smell that just totally caught you off guard. It seems you find out that really nothing in that part of the world has changed where your memory and your senses collide unexpected. You may be so overwhelmed by what you smell and where you now find yourself that all you can do is stop, mid-step, take a pause, maybe sit for a while, and allow what once was to be once again. This kind of thing happens to me quite often. I'll be running through Cameron Park, and every single time I get that first whiff of grilling hot, grilling hot dogs and cedar trees, I'm all of a sudden back. Sounds strange, but I'm back to the Washita National Forest in Arkansas, summer after my freshman year of college. That summer was my first kind of real go of any ministry of my own. I was in charge of basically living in this campground for two months and leading worship services on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And whenever I'm running and I catch that smell of cedar trees and hot dogs, all of a sudden I found myself just kind of slowing down, maybe stopping my run altogether. It's always a good excuse to take a break. Turn the music down, and I just sit there. I can already feel that fear and anxiety rising up as though I'm there again right now. I see myself walking up the steps of that amphitheater where worship services were held, and I can hear myself again secretly praying to God that no one will show up because I'm so afraid that I have nothing to say or to offer. And then all over again, I feel the disappointment ensue whenever I get there and no one actually did show up, which happened more times than not, but I got paid. I feel this sense of joy all over again after a Sunday morning, and I said, wow, I just led that time. It's like I'm there all over again, and it's cedar trees and hot dogs that take me there every time. And it's always a joy to go back, and I always get to go back when I least expect it, because sometimes smells just do that to us. And I think that it's the power of these emotions that the simplest of smells evokes in the core of my being. I think that's why I found myself so struck by Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2.15, even that one verse specifically, and not even the whole verse. In it, he says, we are the aroma of Christ, among others, yes, but he says, to God. God smells our aroma. The fragrance that my life gives off doesn't only affect those people that I brush up against, but somehow God actually is touched by it, moved by it. I have a fragrance to God. If that's true, then I wonder if God allows himself to be so affected by the aromas of my life 
that maybe every once in a while he too kind of finds himself caught off guard. I wonder if my words and my actions and the state of my heart ever kind of send this fragrance up to God and he gets this divine whiff of what I'm doing and all of a sudden he's taken back. I don't know if it's a fair thing to ask that kind of question, but I'm pretty sure Dr. Olson's on sabbatical, so I'm going to just kind of throw it out there this morning. Can God be taken aback by the fragrance of my life? Can it take him back to those streets of Galilee and Jerusalem, to those days that his son, Jesus Christ, walked this earth in flesh and blood? If I'm the aroma of God to Christ, then is it possible that he might too find himself every once in a while caught mid-step, reliving what once was, as though it's happening all over again? I don't know, but I wonder. And I want to invite you all to wonder with me for just a few moments this morning. What does Paul mean when he says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing? You know, we talk a lot about being the hands and the feet of Christ. And we kind of understand that it's tangible, doing the things Christ did, walking towards the people that Christ walked towards. But to be the aroma of something, to give off the fragrance, it seems to go even deeper than just what we do. Because the way something smells is not just a matter of what it does, but of the very core and essence of what it is. So if in our being... If in the core of who we are, we are to give off this fragrance of Christ to God, well, then how in the world do we do that? What does that even mean? And I think that as we read some of these things that Paul talks about in these verses that surround all of this aroma talk, we don't get really a clear answer, but I think we get some good hints. And I'm willing to use those as I wonder for possible leads on how we do this, what it means. For one... Starting in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul seems to believe that one way that believers stand apart, and therefore one way that we just might have this Christ-like aroma, is by being a people who offer a radical love to individuals, but also to the entire church, to entire assemblies. In these first verses, Paul is speaking of one who caused him personal pain, And he says that, in effect, this one has harmed the entire assembly. And as Paul's speaking to them, he says to the church, he says, what you need to do is you need to forgive and console this one who has hurt all of us. And he says that the reason to do that is so the one won't be overwhelmed and overcome by sorrow, and so that the whole might be shielded from the attacks of Satan himself. Paul asked the church for even a moment to look beyond their individual needs for revenge and for justice, and to love the one who has strayed, and to also love the entire congregation enough to offer radical forgiveness. It's radical love that he's talking about, really. Paul says, bring this one back in, and don't just tolerate him, because to tolerate would be the easy thing to do. He says, but actively love him, console him, and in so doing, you love that one, but you also love this entire assembly. And in so doing, if Paul had an extra sentence, he might say, you might just smell 
a little bit like Christ. So as I read these words, I begin to wonder what that means for me. I wonder if it means that when I get that email on Monday mornings that asks why in the world I said what I said on Sunday, or how I could possibly think it's a good idea to take the youth to a certain place or do a certain event. When I get that email, if I don't respond too quickly or too harshly, if I don't immediately become defensive and annoyed that Mr. or Miss so-and-so really have no idea what it's like to be a minister. But instead, if I step back, if I pause for a minute, and if I ask the Lord to help me love the parent as much as the child, to help me love that one as much as I love that whole church, if I respond in a way that guides all of us into a deeper relationship with God and with one another, then I wonder if maybe, just maybe, mid-step, the Father gets a whiff of this unexpected forgiveness and love. And if he there finds himself back in the courtyard of the temple, and if the Father looks over the mob and can kind of see it like it's happening all over again, And I wonder if he hears all over again those shouts, sinner, adulterer, let's kill her. And I wonder if maybe for even a divine second, the father stops what he's doing. A nostalgic sort of smile crosses his face and he listens closely as he hears his son say once again, neither do I condemn you? Go and sin no more. That's the aroma of reconciliation. That's the scent of radical love and radical forgiveness. The smell of grace. I wonder if that's a bit of what it means to be the aroma of Christ to God. I think of that, but then I become afraid Because I fear that too often, if I'm honest, that email brings out my defenses. And I so want to respond with, don't you even know that I almost have a seminary education? (laughs) And don't you even know that I survived two years in the Middle East? I think I can handle two kids on the putt-putt course. (laughs) Don't you even know who I am? I want her to see that I'm right and that I'm qualified. And I want the other parents to see it too and take my side and not her side. And in those cases, I wonder if the father gets a whiff of this all-too-expected pride and insecurity. And if there he finds himself once again as though it's happening right now, walking behind Jesus and James and John. And if he hears their request like it's happening again today, Lord, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? Not that I want her to die, but I wonder if it reminds him of that. You see, distance is always so much simpler than reconciliation. Destruction is always easier than turning and offering a loving embrace. But it's this selfishness and this distance and this pride that I, that I cling to so often, and that seems to be the aroma of the flesh. 
radical love, distance and pride. Which aroma am I giving off? Which are you? Paul then goes on, and he seems to suggest that we may also carry this aroma of Christ when we are a people who lean into a radical call. In verses 14 through 17, which we heard just a bit earlier, Paul says that through Christ, God leads us in triumphal procession. Now, before we get too excited about that, it's important to realize that those people who were usually following in the triumphal procession, they were really just conquered prisoners who were on public display for all to see. So here, Paul doesn't seem to be boasting that he's on the winning team, but rather he's boasting in the fact that he has been captured, that he is a slave, and that he is walking to his death so the kingdom of God may live through him. Paul then goes on to say that the fragrance that we carry is one that constantly tells the world that death is real and that life must be chosen. It doesn't just happen. And it can only happen through Jesus Christ. Not an easy or popular message to tell. And then he reminds us again, if that's not enough, that whether we like it or not, we are people who are called to stand in the very presence of the living God himself. And we are called to speak on his behalf to both the saved and to the lost. Not a simple task by any means. This is a high calling he's talking about. There's no doubt about it. It is one that can only ever be accompanied by fear and trembling. No question. It's a calling that calls for all of us, even for our death. That's the call that Paul is talking about. And he seems to say that when we lean in to this most radical of callings, rather than pushing against it, then maybe we might just smell strangely similar to our Lord Jesus Christ. So that makes me begin to wonder what it means. Does it mean that when I approach this pulpit, my knees shaking and my hands trembling, not just because I'm speaking in the presence of professors and scholars and mentors and my own personal pastors who I know speak much better than myself, but if I approach it with fear and trembling, less because of insecurity and more because I know that I stand in the presence of the living God and speak on his behalf a word of life and death. If I approach this pulpit because, not because I think it puts me on the winning team, but because I have been captured by God and I know that I can do nothing less than serve him with all of me. Or if when I'm lying in bed at night and for the thousandth time, thoughts of loneliness and fear and insecurity and doubt cross my mind. And in that silent moment, I hear the Lord ask, Jamie, even if all of these follow you all the way to your grave, are you still in? Are you still in this calling? Are you still mine? And if my genuine, humble response is, Lord, I'm with you, where else would I possibly go? Then I wonder in those moments if maybe, just maybe, the father catches himself mid-step, maybe even paralyzed 
by this whiff of something that takes him back, takes him back to that garden called Gethsemane. I wonder if those times in my life when I lean into that call, if it's ever so real to him that he almost feels like he's standing there again, watching and listening as his son cries out. I wonder if the father can smell the sweat like it's right there and right now. I wonder if he can sense the tension rising up all over again. And I wonder if he can clearly hear that honest plea, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, this path that may even lead to humiliation and death, I will follow you in it as a living sacrifice. Lord, I am yours. Perhaps as I lean into this calling that asks for all of me, that's willing to experience my own death so his kingdom may live, then perhaps the incense from the altar of my life rises up to the Father. And perhaps he looks down and sees his son in my place and all the while is smiling on me. I wonder if that's possible. I fear, though, I fear that too often this pulpit will be approached simply as part of the job and I will groan that Sundays come too quickly. I fear too often I will need the approval of those in the congregation more than the approval of God himself. So I'll find myself saying what I know they want to hear and what I know good and well the Lord needs me to say will likely go unsaid. I fear that those many sleepless nights, my response to this reality of God's calling on my life will not initially be, yes, please, God. Please sign me up for more death to myself and more suffering as your captured slave. That sounds great. Where do I go? But instead, I've heard myself say, and I can hear myself saying, Lord, is it not enough already? Lord, I look around and there's people out there that haven't given you hardly anything. God, go ask them before you ask anything else of me. God, this call can be too much. Isn't there a way to kind of live my life and serve you too? Everyone else is doing it. And in those moments, when I want to push against this call so hard, I wonder if, if my father is rarely surprised but still finds himself caught mid-step, having got this whiff that takes him back. I wonder if he sees himself once again sitting in the very back row of that synagogue in Capernaum. And I wonder if he sees himself listening in as Jesus looks to his disciples and said, any that want to follow me any farther, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I wonder if the father remembers the pain in his son's heart as he looked out and watched as one disciple after another turned and walked out the door. Things had gotten too complicated. The risk had gotten too high. I wonder if when I push against the call, if he's taken back to Capernaum. Or does he find himself at those palace gates and does he hear Peter once again say, I tell you, I do not know him. I was happy to know him when he carried a sword. 
I was happy to know him when following him seemed honorable, maybe even glorious. But now that he is nearing death and asking me to do the same, I tell you, I do not know him. Does it take him back? You know, it seems that this willingness to follow, to follow so long as it doesn't ask too much of myself, that that's the aroma of the flesh. Leaning into a radical call that asks for everything. They're pushing against it so I can keep something. Which is my aroma and which is yours? Finally, Paul seems to suggest that this Christ-like aroma just might arise when we are a people who cling to a radical humility. Just a few verses into chapter 3 there, he begins to speak about our confidence. He says our confidence does not come from any competence that we have in and of ourselves to offer anything, to know or to do anything, but rather it can only ever come through the gift of God's grace. We are only fit to be ministers because God has made it so. So it seems that we may smell a lot like Christ when we acknowledge that there is no knowledge, there is no gift, and there is no passion that is ours apart from him and his purposes. And so finally, that makes me wonder. Whenever I get that Dr. Non exam back and I aced it, plus got five bonus points for just being that great, which is an impossible example, obviously. If I, if I get that back and I immediately turn the paper over and simply say a prayer of thanks to God for the ability to learn and to understand. Or whenever a member at church comes to me, tears in their eyes, and asks why a year later they still can't find a job and why God won't help them, or why dad has cancer once again. If rather than standing up straight, shoulders back and beginning to throw out words like theodicy and sovereignty and providence to show that I've got this. If instead I bend down, take them in my arms and cry with them, begin to speak less about what I know and more about what I'm willing to do to be there for them. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe in those moments of, of true humility, if God is going about his day as usual and he catches this strange smell that takes him back, takes him back to his son sitting before the accusers absolutely silent, humble, no need to prove anything to anyone through fancy arguments or intellectual tirades. I wonder if God stands back and watches from the crowd all over again and if the fatherly pride rises up in him as he sees that his son loves the accusers enough not to answer their questions, but rather to go and to suffer with them and for them. You know, he seems to suggest that when we're willing to walk alongside rather than three steps ahead of the other, then we just might smell a bit like Christ. I fear too often, though, that I receive that grade back and I immediately attribute it to my study habits and natural talents. I see theological questions as a chance to prove what this three years has done 
And you know, sometimes there's a pastoral time for that, but I'm beginning to learn that it's usually when I've got nothing to prove. I see more families join our church, and I think, gosh, we must really be doing something right around here. I really believe that God must be proud of me because of how great I answered a question or how well I handled a pastoral moment. And I forget that this ministry is his. And I forget who I was before he called me and did this in me. Any gift I have to offer has been given from him only for the sake of his kingdom so that none may boast. And I forget it again and again. And in those all too frequent moments of prideful weakness, I wonder if the father ever gets a whiff of my heart and he's taken back back to that path with Jesus and the disciples walking side by side. And I wonder if as he follows a few steps behind, if he hears that question asked again, Lord, who's the greatest in your kingdom? And I wonder if, if God looks at my heart and remembers the disciples' hearts and how they all pretty much assumed he would look at them and say, well, y'all are doing pretty good. You are. And I wonder if, if the father smiles as he watches the shock cross all of their faces as Jesus turns from the disciples, finds a little bitty kid, and says, whoever's like this one, that's who's really great. Whoever is just little bitty and knows that they have nothing of significance to offer at all. But man, they are always so excited when they get a chance to try. That's who's great in my kingdom. Radical humility. Is that the aroma I'm giving off? Is that the aroma you are? I choose to believe that God loves us enough to allow himself to be taken back by our fragrance. I choose to believe that the sun continues to walk this earth every day as the spirit empowers us to offer radical love, lean into radical callings, and cling to radical humility. Friends, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we may be a people who take God by surprise every single day. I pray that again and again he would be going about his day as usual and we get a whiff of what we're doing, even more of who we are. And he would find himself all of a sudden caught off guard saying, oh, wow, that reminds me of when my son walked this earth in flesh and blood and did that same thing and was that same way. You know, sometimes a fragrance can strike up a smell so real that it's almost like it's happening all over again right here and right now. May our fragrance Strike up endless memories to God of Christ on this earth in flesh and blood. And may he walk this earth all over again every single day. And may he do it through us. By his grace, may we be the aroma of Christ to God. Amen.